The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. We're going to be in Matthew 4, verses 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone." Jesus said to him again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Good to see you all. My name is Gary. I'm one of the pastors here at Park Church. We're going to be spending some time in a passage that is, it's weighty. Uh, It's talking about a dynamic, a spiritual dynamic that is maybe a passage that might have some familiarity to you, but a concept that for many of us is a little bit outside of the box, a little bit bizarre. And I think it has massive significance with the way you and I operate in this world right now, in this moment um, we, we often say before we pray, we just want to pay attention, God is with us. Um, but this passage draws attention to another reality that, that's true right now. That we aren't alone in this world. That there are unseen beings. Now this like starts weirding you out a little bit. But there are unseen beings. There are spiritual beings that have influence over this world. Influence is over individuals and over cultures and societies and peoples. And are working to actually obstruct your faith in Jesus. And that might sound bizarre, which is why we need to talk about where that shows up in the Bible and why that might make sense of certain aspects of our existence in this world. You might come from a more materialistic philosophy where it's just kind of like what you see is what you get. Um, The Bible offers a different way of understanding reality, and we need the Holy Spirit's help to see it. And I think it's really, really important uh, for us to see the things that that God's Word is opening up uh, for us today. And so we're going to pray. I'm also, my voice is kind of going downhill today. I've been fighting off a cold all week. So I'm going to pray that God would give strength and ask that you would give me grace as we kind of horse my way through uh, the, the sermon tonight. But let's pray together and ask God to work. Jesus, we need you. Uh, we need you desperately because there are things in this world that are just too much for us to even comprehend in our minds. There are things that transcend my ability to kind of get my mind around and for us as humans that just kind of feel confined to these five senses there are dynamics that feel real and we see them in your word and uh, and they make sense of certain things but they're just hard for us and so I pray that your spirit would guide us today not just to understand in our heads but our hearts to be engaged in the spiritual battle um, that we find ourselves in and so would you pour out grace on us Uh, Where there's cynicism or skepticism, would you soften our hearts just to be receptive to the possibility that there might be things we don't understand about the world? Uh, Where there are fears and maybe bad experiences that make us resistant to considering some of these things, Um, would you give us trust in you and your presence and your goodness and in your faithfulness? And ultimately, we're praying that you would help us see Jesus, our victor, our Savior, our Redeemer, our King, uh, the one who has conquered the evil one, who is with us even now. And so, Jesus, thanks for being with us. Would you guide us this evening through your word? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I became a Christian in junior high, and uh, one one of my chief concerns throughout the rest of junior high and high school was to not become a weird Christian. Um, I'm like, all right, Jesus is real. Like, love that, you know, I feel like this, this fresh faith that he, he died for me and he loved me and he gave me grace and he was with me and it was helping me make sense of my own life, but I just didn't want to become a weird Christian. I was in a public high school and had a group of friends in that high school 
and, uh, and I wanted to kind of like still fit in as a normal person. I didn't have any Christian friends at the high school. And so uh, now, now the issue was in my youth group, uh, which I love and I'm so thankful for. I have so many friends from that youth group um, that now don't jump to conclusions. I, I, I have to be careful saying this. The youth group was predominantly, and I said predominantly, hyper-predominantly homeschooled people. And now, like there's gonna be Snickers, and there's gonna be, they're like super awesome, super legit homeschooled people. My best friend in the world was uh, one of those homeschooled people. He married my sister. JD, I love you. If you listen to this sermon, you're normal and cool, and I'm not talking about you. And, uh, and I love them and wonderful people. But, but there are stereotypes sometimes for, for, for good reasons. Um, and some of those good reasons were in my youth group. And so... I remember so vividly, this is true, this is like totally true. We were like talking about evangelism and we were talking about ways, and evangelism is just the, the christian way of saying we want to tell people about Jesus, we want people who don't know who Jesus is and what he's done for them and what it means to follow him. We want people to know this is good news, the world should know. So we're talking about like we should tell people and, and a lot of people were saying, well, I don't have any non-Christian friends. And so we were like thinking, so like how do we like, be bold about the good news about Jesus when, when you don't have non-Christian friends. And they're like, well, but you have non-Christian friends. And, and they're like, how about we like on a Friday night go to one of your school's basketball games with you? And I was like, oh God, no. You know, <laughs> oh God, no. You know, please no. You know, like let's, you know, like I think the most awkward thing in the world is door-to-door evangelism. But I was like, I will door-to-door evangelize every night if it will keep you guys away from my high school. You know, like. <laughs> I will do that awkward thing, like I'll get rejected 40 times in a row if it means not getting rejected at high school for four years, you know, and because uh, I really just didn't, I didn't want to be a weird Christian. I didn't want to be that guy. Now, now here's the problem. Christianity, it turns out, is kind of weird. There's weird things about Christianity, like really weird things. And when I say weird, what I mean is like, that don't fit in our conception of normal. In the broad social conception of what is normal, there are things about the Christian worldview, things about the way Jesus thought, the way Jesus led, the way Jesus talked, the way that Jesus conceived of reality that pushed you into a realm of thinking that is going to be socially awkward. And one of those things, and it's gonna, we're gonna look at it in this passage, is the concept that there are unseen beings in this world that matter for your day-to-day life that you need to be paying attention to and aware of and kind of on guard about and kind of approaching the world with an attentiveness to the reality of unseen spiritual beings that are opposing your faith in Christ. Now that doesn't mean you have to be like a googly-eyed, like wide-eyed, crazy person that comes into the room and says like crazy things that weird everybody. You don't have to be that, you know. Um, but there's a place for people like that, I suppose. And, uh, but, but to be honest about the way Jesus thought about the world, and in this passage, we're introduced to this concept of spiritual warfare. Now, for some of you, you're like, geez, I, I, again, I hoped you weren't one of those churches. You've talked about this stuff before. Every time you guys talk about the Holy Spirit stuff and spiritual stuff, it kind of weirds me out. And I've hoped that was like a phase in the life of your church. And I'm just like saying, it's not a phase in the life of our church. It's a, like a super real thing in the Bible. And so we're going we're gonna to talk about it because we actually have to learn what is, this, what is this about and why does it matter for our life? Now, it's like, it's interesting to me when we think about what Christianity is, what we're saying at the very core is we believe that there's an, an invisible God who created everything and we just spent, you know, 30 minutes singing songs to somebody somewhere, you know, it's like, who are they singing to, you know, and it's an invisible God that we believe like is present and is active and, and is working and we're like, we're good with like God the Father because that feels like my heart kind of wants a, a father, a good father and we're good with Jesus because we like see his life throughout history and that, that's significant and the Holy Spirit's like, questionable. It's like a little bit outside of our box, but like it seems like he comes with the whole three-in-one package, the Trinity thing. And so we have to like embrace the spirit, but the devil, maybe, angels and demons. Why? Well, because the Bible is like talks about these spiritual beings. In fact, all throughout the Bible, Jesus will be, throughout the Gospel of Matthew, engaging with spiritual beings, showing his power over them. 
People like the Apostle Paul will say to the church in Corinth, and this is in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, there's this division in the church, and there's racial divisions, there's family divisions, there's dysfunction and bitterness and pain that's just, just ripping the church to shreds. And, and Paul's been writing letters to the church in Corinth, and finally he writes this letter to them, and there's this, like, this moment of reconciliation, and he's saying, hey, I want to I show forgiveness to these people who had rejected me, and I'm encouraging you all to show forgiveness, because, because when we show forgiveness, we show the, the beauty of the kingdom of God, and what he says in 2 Corinthians 2 is we don't want to be outwitted by Satan because we're not ignorant of his designs, his schemes. That there's this idea that through division, Satan is seeking to outwit people, to confuse and to in kind of in clever ways undermine what God's trying to do to build this kingdom. And one of the ways he's doing that is by sowing in division among peoples and families and relationships and individuals. And he's saying we don't want to be ignorant of his designs, his schemes, his tactics. Now the problem is many of us are largely, predominantly ignorant of the tactics and the schemes of the evil one. Even in the Lord's Prayer, we pray it, we say, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Don't lead us into temptation, deliver us from evil. A better translation is deliver us from the evil one. Like it's a part of the core prayer of the Christian faith throughout the, throughout, throughout the ages. Deliver us, free us from the clutches of the evil one. And so what I want to do this evening, and at the very kind of heart of this passage, is kind of open our eyes to a truth. And, and, and here it is. And this is just the core of this passage. That you live your life on a spiritual battlefield. And Jesus is your only hope. You live your life right in the middle of a spiritual battlefield where there is a war waging for your soul. And Jesus and the victory that he accomplishes here and the victory he will accomplish on the cross are our only hope. Jesus is our only hope. And so, so what I want us to see this evening is we're going to kind of look at just the, the nature of who this enemy and who these enemies are, these spiritual beings. Because I think it's important to get kind of a, a big kind of picture view. And then we're going to press into those tactics, the tactics that the devil uses towards Jesus that are reflective of the, of the types of tactics he uses in our lives today and what it means to find hope in Jesus now, before we dive in, there's, there's this really famous book by C.S. Lewis. It's just brilliant. It's called Screwtape Letters. And in the prologue of Screwtape Letters, which is this kind of correspondence between this senior demon tempter and this kind of lesser demon tempter, that's an allegory of other kind of social dynamics. But at the beginning, uh, in this brilliant prologue, um, Lewis says that there are, in this world, concerning the demons, there are two equal and opposite errors. He said, on the one hand, people, there are people who are just obsessive about spiritual warfare and, and demonic stuff. And you're like, I need to learn everything and I need to learn demons' names and territorial demons. There's probably a demon behind this and this. And if I could just like, just kind of map out a demon and you've got like some chart with yarn in your house, right? And you go to like Harry Potter festivals and stuff like that. You know, like, you're like all, all about that stuff. Truth be told, I was Harry Potter one year for a Halloween party. I can't, I can't lie. I actually was. I had a chopstick wand and everything. Um, but you're like, you're like, you love this stuff, right? There are some of you in this room that you love this stuff. There are others in, in the room who fall into what Lewis would call the, the other, the, the equal and opposite error, which is totally ignorant of and ignoring the existence altogether of these spiritual beings. Either way, he's, Lewis says, he's equally pleased with both. The enemy would be equally pleased with both obsession and total ignorance and obliviousness. And so we're trying to kind of say, how do we be aware of these things in the way that the Bible presents them? And so uh, what I want us to do this morning is, is start up by looking at just kind of the nature of this enemy. Uh, we need to know our enemy, who he is, and these enemies, these figures. And I, I want to acknowledge, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring you into a concept that is that is a stretch for many of you in the room about the nature of spiritual beings in the world, things that many of us uh, have not spent a lot of time thinking about. And so engage with me a little bit. Look with me at chapter four, verse one. It says this. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Um, in the context, Jesus had just been baptized by John the Baptist in the river. When he's coming out of the water, immediately the heavens, which is a realm, it's this unseen realm. It's like this realm of 
of existence where God dwells and spiritual beings dwell. Paul will talk about things like in the heavenly places, in the heavenly realms, that there is this realm that sort of like opens up and the spirit of God comes out of this realm and comes like a dove and it rests upon Jesus. And a voice from God the Father cries out from the heavenly realm over Jesus the Son saying, this is my beloved Son and I am so pleased with him. Jesus, you are my beloved Son and I am so pleased with you. And the Spirit comes and rests on him. Immediately, the very next verse, it says, the Spirit, that same Spirit, led Jesus into the wilderness with the purpose of, in order to be tempted by the devil. That something happening in the wilderness is by God's design. That God has led him, the Spirit of God has led him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So you're like, who is this devil figure in this passage? He's going to be referred to by three names. First, the devil, and then the tempter in verse three, and then later he's going to be called the Satan, which all are titles, none are proper names. The devil is this one who is bringing deception and slander against the people of God. The, the tempter is enticing people to turn away from the wisdom of God and the way of God. And the, and the, the Satan is this adversary who's opposing God and opposing his people. And so it's these three kind of titles that are given to this one figure, this one spiritual figure. Now, we learn from the Bible that, that this, this figure has shown up before. And so I just want to back way up and kind of talk about where does this figure come from and kind of what does he represent in, in a broader kind of spiritual realm. So what we'll call the unseen realm. That there's a realm of this world. You're like, are you talking like a fourth dimension? Sure. You know, um, there's a dimension to reality that you don't see. Now, for philosophical materialists, that's like stretching you past your breaking point. But philosophical materialism makes no sense of Christianity, period. And so, like, the existence of God stretches you outside of the kind of the, the, the boundaries of philosophical materialism. So just kind of let that stretch go a little further before the rubber band breaks and consider the possibility that there are other spiritual beings in the world. And so we see this, this player, Revelation chapter 12 is going to equate the Satan and the devil and this accuser with that ancient serpent that showed up in the Garden of Eden. And so in the Garden of Eden, we kind of like, we've talked about this a ton. There's this experience where God's established his kingdom and he's created humanity to experience flourishing life. That's where all the beauty in the world comes from. We talk about this like every week. And all the brokenness, we've said, comes from the fact that humanity rejects and rebels against the reign of the king, which is true, but it's not the whole truth because humans aren't doing that in a vacuum. Humans are turning from the reign of the king and from the, the trustworthiness of his word through the influence of another player, this serpent in the garden who is enticing the first humans to distrust the promises of God, distrust the wisdom of God, distrust the way of God, and to forge a different path towards life. So there's this spiritual being, this, this serpent, who's enticing the first humans to turn away from the reign of God. And that's going to be more or less the mission of that particular spiritual being throughout the rest of the storyline. And he's going to play a part in all of these different kind of like moments throughout the whole story, including right here in the wilderness. He's going to keep showing up on a few different occasions throughout the storyline. And he'll show up at the end as this great, what Revelation 12 calls the accuser of the brothers and sisters. Those, the one who's going before God to accuse us for all the ways we've fallen short and are unworthy of his love. To which we say yes and amen. And we plead the blood of the lamb on our behalf. This is where the story is going. Now, the reason why it's important is because when we think of what Jesus came to do, it means he's not merely coming to forgive us of our sin, of which we are culpable, but he's also coming to rescue us, deliver us, redeem us from the influences and the power of those spiritual beings. So he's not merely forgiving us of sin, he's actually plundering the enemy's kingdom by rescuing us, us that were existing in this sort of captivity, rescuing us from his clutches to give us life in his kingdom. So it's a piece of what he's doing, which is why throughout the whole gospel narrative, you're going to see Jesus going to like over and over and over with these kind of demonic oppressed people, casting demons out of people and bringing them into his kingdom, showing he's liberating people from captivity, spiritual captivity, and bringing them into the kingdom of his love. Now, this is all over the New Testament. The apostle Peter will say in 1 Peter chapter 5, 
says in the midst of like learning to follow Jesus and all of the anxieties and the overwhelming troubles of this world, he says like, just like all of these anxieties weigh on us. He says, you need to cast your anxieties on the Lord because he cares for you. He cares for you, right? If you like no anxiety, you know burden, you know weight, it's like God cares for you. Cast that stuff on him. Next verse. Be sober-minded. Be vigilant. Like pay attention. Be clear-eyed, right? Like don't get caught like drinking at the wheel. Like be clear-eyed. Be attentive. Why, Peter? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour actively. Peter to the church on the other side of the cross, that there's a adversary prowling like a lion through the pews, looking for one of you, any of you, any he can, that he could just devour. That he could devour your faith, devour your hope. He could devour you in shame. He could devour you in these feelings of this overwhelming sense of complacency and loss. And and he is seeking people to devour. And Peter says, you need to resist him firm in faith, trusting in the promises of God, knowing the same kinds of struggles are being experienced by all your brothers and sisters around the room and around the world, right? So Paul, a different apostle, will say in Ephesians chapter 6, when he's talking about we need to see the gospel spreading to all the kingdoms of the world, he's, he's noting that because of human pride and because of sin, we've created these structures that separate ethnic people group from other ethnicities, and there's ethnic divisions that are just destroying humanity, and the gospel is flooding into all of these different nations, and it's bringing one new people out of all of it. And Paul's saying, none of these people are our enemy. We're not wrestling against flesh and blood. As the gospel moves forward, there's no human people group that are our enemy. What are, what are, are our enemies? Our enemies, Paul says in Ephesians 6, are rulers and authorities and principalities, which he equates to cosmic forces of darkness in the heavenly places. That there are spiritual beings exercising influence over humanity, of which humans are captive and being influenced and turned away from the reign of God. And when we preach the good news, the good news is, one, your sins can be forgiven. Two, the king has power over the one who's holding you captive to free you from his clutches and bring you into his kingdom. It's a huge piece of the gospel. is liberation from kingdoms of darkness, transferring you into the kingdom of God's beloved son. So there's a whole worldview thing that just needs to like fill out a little bit. One more weird thing. And you're like, this is too weird already. All right. One more weird thing. When you go all the way back to Genesis and humanity, through the influence of the serpent, the evil one, this Satan, this accuser, and this adversary, they reject the reign of God and they're exiled from the kingdom of God. This separation from the kingdom. So the rest of the story is going to be about God bringing people back into his kingdom. But they're not out here kind of like nomadically wandering around. They actually constitute into people groups and nations. By Genesis chapter 11, they're kind of being scattered and formed in different people groups, different nations that fill the earth. And the Bible actually talks about on a few different occasions that over those people groups, there are spiritual beings, little g gods, little g gods, not the one true God, not the creator of heaven and earth, but spiritual beings that are exercising influence over entire nations and people groups, kind of creating among those particular people groups various value systems and ways of forging life and meaning and hope, ways of dealing with their own concept of sin and hope. And so this is where you start understanding where all the kind of, the Bible's understanding of where all the different religions of the world come from. They're not just like a bunch of humans gathered together and said, let's make up a religion. There's spiritual powers influencing humans to try to find life in certain ways separated from the reign of God, separated from the kingdom of God. And that includes every people group, every kingdom, to use kingdom as just a, a, a nomer for a group of people in a particular place at a particular time, throughout all of history and throughout all of the world, including you and I today. That there are spiritual beings that are exer- exercising influence over American value systems that creates a, a kind of kingdom from which people need to be liberated And we're not alone in it. It's not just like a bunch of humans that decided a holocaust was a good idea. It's not just a a bunch of humans that decided that genocide was was a smart way and, and warring was a smart way to kind of find life and child sacrifices were smart ways. That there are spiritual beings 
creating crazy, insepid, toxic, destructive ideas that lead people into bondage and destruction and pain and death. And Jesus comes on the scene in Matthew chapter 4, not merely to kind of bide a few years before he dies on a cross for our sins, but to show his ability to rescue people from kingdoms of darkness and to bring them into his kingdom of life and love. That's the framework. And it's outside of the box for some of you. It's stretching some of your, even your kind of like biblical kind of concepts, but it's so significant to get your mind and your heart around that because it's into that realm that this battle begins to happen. And I want you to see this battle and it's because it's, it's significant. There's two things that are happening in the middle of this section. One is Satan is coming to genuinely oppose Jesus. Um, Satan's coming to oppose Jesus. He wants to stop Jesus from fulfilling the mission that God had given him. We already learned earlier in Matthew chapter one that the mission was to save his people from their sins. Satan does not want people to be saved from their sins. He wants to keep people in their sin, in their shame, in their guilt, isolated and alone. And so he's trying to stop Jesus from that mission. But there's another thing happening. It says the spirit of God was leading Jesus into this moment. That God is in this moment actually present with Jesus He's in total control, and in this scene, Jesus is also experiencing a sort of training. He's encountering Satan for the first time, but it will not be the last time he encounters Satan. He's actually learning how to trust in the word of God and the wisdom of God and the faithfulness of God in the face of circumstantial trials, like not having food for 40 days and 40 nights, and satanic, demonic opposition circumstantial trials and satanic opposition that's trying to get him in those painful circumstances to turn away from the reign of God. And in that setting, God is designing this. The Father's designed the season as a time to actually grow Jesus' faithfulness to him and his strength. And we see this in the passage. He's actually, it's interesting that it's after 40 days of fasting without food. It says he was hungry. And we can begin to think that what's happening in this scene is Jesus is at his weakest possible point, and that's when Satan plunges and attacks. It's not what's happening. It's not what's happening. Jesus is, yes, physically weak, but this is, his, this is like the moment of his greatest spiritual strength. The fasting for 40 days has been starving his flesh and feeding his spirit, prepping for battle. Think about like Rocky and like the Rocky movies, like preparing for the big fight. For 40 days, he's been fasting, preparing his heart, preparing his spirit, trusting in the word of God and the faithfulness of God, even in the face of no food and, and no water and just trusting in God and, and leaning wholly onto the presence of God and the promises of God and the word of God. And now he's ready to face the great enemy. And he enters the ring for this like epic showdown between Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the, the snake killer, and the serpent, the Satan of old, the adversary, and, and Satan begins to throw his punches. And so what are the punches? Well, the first punch is this. The first tactic he tends to employ is deception. Deception. Look with me at the passage, starting in verse 2. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and he said to him, If you are the Son of God, which we just heard like three verses earlier, God has said, you are my beloved son and I'm really pleased with you. Now Satan is saying, if that's true, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, well, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Um, Satan is calling Jesus to turn away from God's design for his life. Now, e eating food or turning stones to bread wouldn't have been a bad thing, but that's not what God was calling Jesus into the wilderness to do. Jesus was in this season of fasting in order to learn how to trust God in the face of physical lack, to learn how to trust God in the face of challenges, circumstantial challenges. And the devil is saying, forget that. Forget that wisdom. That doesn't feel like wisdom at all. If you're the son of God, then just make bread out of these rocks. And Satan's offering for Jesus an alternative path to life. There's God's wisdom for life. There's God's direction in your life. There's where God is leading you in life. And Satan says, God's not leading you to satisfaction. There's a different way to satisfaction, which is just to 
kind of take it on your own. Like, take it on your own kind of like authority and control and power to make some bread. Eat some bread. If you're the son of God, make the bread and eat. Which is just like the lie that was offered in, in Genesis chapter 3. When God had told humanity that they had all of these incredible gifts to enjoy and to trust him and to not eat of this one tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because in the day that they eat of it, they would surely die. And Satan says, God's holding something back from you. If you want joy, if you want life, if you want happiness, don't trust God's word. Don't trust God's wisdom. Don't trust God's reign. Don't trust God's kindness and God's love. Make your own path. Forge your own path to life. He's tempting us to create a different path to life, which he does all of the time in our lives today. He's tempting you to create a different path to life, different than the one that God designed for you. Now that doesn't like show up to you like a little red guy with a pitchfork on one shoulder and a little like uh, another guy clothed in white with wings and a halo uh, on your other shoulder, like, you know, speaking in your ears, like do this or do this. It doesn't, doesn't show up like that. You know what it shows up like? Shows up like one day you're looking through Instagram and you see this lifestyle from somebody else and you're like, man, I, I really want that lifestyle way more than I want that lifestyle. That kind of family more than I want my family. That sort of like life stage more than I want my stage. I, wa I want those things and I'm going to just start like bending my life to try to get that, that lifestyle and starting to get frust frustrated with God for not giving me those things and, and just want that and gear my whole life to get that, that next stage of life. You're like, is that bad? Well, it's called covetousness. It's this coveting things that God has not designed in your life and given you in this moment and saying, I'm going to bend my life because that will give me life. Just the next, the next thing I could acquire, the next thing I could earn, the next thing I could gain, the next thing I could achieve, the next season I could get to. And we're tempted to turn away from God and start bending our life in that. It shows up like a like an opportunity for career advancement, which is great. And you, and you take that opportunity and it feels good and you get this like sense of feeling. You know, you, now, you're, now you're in a place of leadership and management and that feels good. And you just like look up the ladder and you're like, man, I, I just want to keep climbing that ladder. I want to keep climbing that ladder. And so you start just like, just disciplining everything in you to climb the ladder, climb the ladder, climb the ladder, climb the ladder and achieve, achieve more and more power, more and more influence, more and more acclaim. Never mind the things you sacrifice on the altar on your ascent your family, your emotional health, your relationship with God, Christian brothers and sisters, like rest in this world that God's designed for you. These are the deceptions that come. It shows up like this. You, you go to work tomorrow and it was a hard weekend with your spouse. You didn't feel appreciated. There was conflict that you didn't resolve and it was hard. And then that other person over there just like laughed at your jokes and just like lit up when you walked into the room and really appreciated all the good things you did. And you just like find yourself just wanting to hang out a little more and, and you, you like can justify it. We're just friends, it's fine. We're not doing anything. But all of a sudden fantasies and just imagination and what would it be like to be with them instead of my spouse? And, and all of a sudden those kind of lies just start creeping in and grabbing a hold of your heart. It shows up like you get home from work. You get home from a long day, a long day with your kids, a long day looking for a job. And you think, and the only way I could unwind, the only way I could unwind is just to, to sit down on the couch and just veg out and watch another episode and another episode and another episode and just one more. And, and I know I'm tired and I should have gone to bed like an hour and a half ago, but just one more because it's so good. And, uh, and is it? Is it so good? And, and we watch one more and now you're like too tired to think about anything, too tired to wake up in the morning and spend time with your father who loves you and wants to walk with you through life and be present with you. No space for him because you vegged out and distracted yourself into what Ronald Rollheiser calls a spiritual oblivion. It shows up like at the end of a long night when the anxieties are, are looming and you think the only way I can get rid of these anxieties is just to, my friend gave me those pills. They said they were super helpful for him and I know I'm not prescribed them and I don't really need them, but I, I tried it one time and it's super helpful and, I, and I'm starting to make a habit of this, but, but I'll, get, I'll, I'll get a grip on it these opioids and these painkillers and these anxiety meds that, that you don't necessarily need have become like this place in your life. Or just a little more wine than you used to pour, just a, a little stronger pour of whiskey than it, than it used to be and a little more often. And these are the only ways how I can find rest. And these are the things 
These are the things, covetousness and escape tactics and, and turning from the wisdom of God. These are the, are the tactics where there's spiritual power behind this stuff. Tempting you to turn away from the wisdom of God and the reign of God and the love of God and the rest of God and the peace of God and the joy of God and the life that God offers. Instead of orienting your life around him and saying, I want you at the center and then all of these other things like my job and my career and my family and my desires, which are real things that I have to navigate, are going to find their place with, with you at the center of my life, learning to come to you and to trust in you and to, and to come to your word. The, the quote that Jesus gives from Deuteronomy chapter 8 is a quote that comes from a time where the people of God are being tempted without food, without food and, and struggling, and they're learning what does it mean to trust that God is the giver of life, more than bread itself. And Jesus says, life isn't found by bread alone. Life is found by every word that comes from the mouth of God, by putting God's reign, God's wisdom, God's love right at the center. That's where life is found. And that can be found when, when the bread is in the physical possessions and the circumstances of your life feel awesome. And it can be found when, when the circumstances of your life and the bread of life and the struggles of life are, are feeling like bringing you to a low point. Like the Apostle Paul says, I've learned in all of these states how to be content because I can do everything with Christ who's giving me strength. And that's what Jesus is finding. He's finding the strength of God in this moment. The second punch the enemy throws, the second punch the enemy throws is the punch of accusation. He throws a punch of accusation, accusing both God and Jesus in the same, in the same stroke. Look with me at the passage, and this is uh, in verse five. It says, then the devil took him to the holy city, and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on, your, on their wings they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone, or on their hands they will bear you up. And Jesus said to them, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Um, what Satan is, is throwing at Jesus now is a scripture quote. He takes the truth of God and he distorts it. It's a promise of God from Psalm 91 where God has promised that he will protect his people. He will protect his people from calamity and from destruction. He will be there watching over them, ministering to them, caring for them. And Satan takes that truth and he distorts it to say what God's promising is that nothing hard will ever happen to you, Jesus. And so here's how we're going to put that to the test. We're going to take you up to the super high pinnacle and set you on the top and say, God promised that nothing's going to, nothing's going to hurt you. You're not going to strike your foot. His angels are going to care for you and, and carry you. And so why don't you just jump and, and, and test God out? See if he's really faithful to his promises. And we do this stuff. We're like, God, if you're good, if you're good, then you'd give me this thing. If you're good, you wouldn't let that happen to me. If you love me, you wouldn't have let that happen in my past. And if you were powerful, you wouldn't let those things happen in the world. And, and we all of a sudden find ourselves putting God to the test. Like we're the judge and we're the jury and God's the defendant. And we get determined based on the things we see in this life from our awesome, like full formed little human brains, like whether or not God can be good or real or righteous or loving from our like very small minded kind of conception of reality. And so we put God to the test. Now here's the, here's the problem. When you, when, when you kind of approach God as if you can kind of determine based on circumstances whether or not God's good or God loves you, you're either going to find yourself accusing God over and over and over or, and, and sometimes maybe this might be more likely, accusing yourself, which is saying, I guess he doesn't love me or maybe I'm not a son of God. Maybe I'm not a daughter of God. Because if I was, then he wouldn't have let those things happen. And so you find yourself feeling isolated, ashamed, alone, like life's not panning out. And that, that must mean the fact that my life hasn't moved forward in the trajectory I wanted. And the fact that that thing happened in my life. And that, that, that there's that brokenness. And then there's that deficit that I have. And this thing that I feel like I carry with me all the time that I'm just ashamed of. This habit or this way of life or this way my personality or, or the way I look or all these things that just feel like I just feel like I carry this struggle and God must not love me and God must not be for me and God not, must not be with me. And we find ourselves falling into these like pits of, of shame when that's not what God has said. That's the lie of the accuser. The word of God says to you, in Christ you are beloved. 
You are loved. He delights in you. He's pleased with you. He's for you. He's not against you. He's not trying to condemn you. He's not trying to punish you. He's not trying to squash you. He's not trying to kick you to the curb. You're not a second-rate child of God in the family of God. You're not kind of like pushed to the margins. He delights in you. Jesus entering the world is this incredible declaration that God is for you. He's chasing after you. The death of Jesus on the cross is this this glaring statement, this, this proclamation of God's love for you, his faithfulness towards you, his patience and his mercy and his grace. He loves you. And Satan wants to accuse you. And that's always his second play. First, he wants to turn you away from God to find another path to life. And then he wants to keep you there. Yeah, yeah you, you did flirt with that person in the, in the workspace. You, 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 did, you did fail in that area. You, you did struggle with pornography and that struggle that you've had again and again and again. You, you have been struggling with bitterness and you have been struggling with resentment in your marriage and you have been struggling with this failure and you've been greedy and, and all these things and you're like, and now Satan's like, you've done these things and God could never love you anymore. He's like, what a, what a, what a cruel, what a cruel thing. Entice you to turn away. And as soon as you do, flip the hat and accuse you and saying, God will never love you now. He'll never love you now. That's a lie. It's a lie to keep you alone, to keep you isolated, to keep you hidden in shame. When the truth of the gospel says that it is in Christ that we find cleansing and forgiveness and hope in the face of our guilt, in the face of our shame, in the face of our failures. In the, in the third the third temptation, the third punch of the enemy is just, this is no holds barred, an outright call to Jesus to reject God the Father and to turn and worship him. It's a play, it's a play to say, just forget God and come to me and I will give you everything. I will give you everything you want. Look at the passage, verse 8. It says, and again the devil took him to a very high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Satan shows him all the kingdoms of this world. So we get back into this sort of like weird spiritual kind of like geography we were talking about before, where there's a very real sense in which Satan, who in Matthew 12 is called the prince of all the demons, he's the prince of the demons. In Ephesians chapter 2, he's called the prince of the power of the air. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he's called the god of this age. He has some authority over this world. He is in some sense, and 1 John will call him the god of this world. He has some authority over the kingdoms of this world. He's exercising influence and people are in captivity. And it's like he has all of these kingdoms. And he says, Jesus, if you will fall down and worship me instead of falling down and worshiping this God the Father that you are claiming to be so faithful to, if you will worship me, I can give you all of these kingdoms, all of the kingdoms. I can put them all under your authority. They can all be yours. Everything you want. Now, what's stunning about that, about that offer is, is that there's a sense in which Satan can give that. And yet, by the end of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 28, after Jesus defeats Satan here in this moment, after he defeats him again on the cross, and he dies for our sins, he rises again on the third day, and in this exalted state, he says in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven, in the heavenly realm, and on earth have been given to me. All the kingdoms are mine. And he commissions us saying, it's all mine. All of it is mine. And it's mine through faithfulness. And it's mine through faithfulness to God and walking with him and dying for sins. And because of that, I can send my people out into all the nations, all those kingdoms, and have people make disciples of, to see disciples made and rescued from the kingdoms of darkness and brought into my kingdom where they experience love and joy and forgiveness and hope and resurrection. Like this is what Jesus is given. In Philippians chapter two, it says, because Jesus laid down his life as a servant, it says, therefore, because of his faithfulness 
to God in darkness, in pain, in the valley. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that's above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow to that king. Every knee should bow in the heavenly places and on earth and under the earth. Satan has the ability to say, hey, here's the kingdoms of earth over which I have some temporary delegated authority. I can give you all of it right now. And what Jesus gets when he says faithful to God is he gets all of it and more. He gets the whole thing, the heavenly realm, the earthly realm, dead, those who are dead in Christ, all of it's his. He says every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That through Jesus' faithfulness, he is rescuing people from the dominion of darkness. And it's a really powerful way that this whole passage ends. It says, when Jesus like, finally gets this kind of like this, this last blow from Satan, worship me, turn from God, worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms, Jesus says, enough is enough, get out of here, be gone. This is over. This is over. And he expels Satan from his presence and it says these angels come and begin ministering to him just like Psalm 91 had said that they would, but not ministering to him to test God, ministering to him because of his faithfulness to God and caring for his needs. And this Jesus then from that moment forward will go through all the gospel of Matthew straight kicking butt over and over and over telling this demon, get out. This group of demons, get out of them. Get out of there. And showing again and again and again his power over these forces of darkness, rescuing people from captivity, bringing them into his love, cleansing them from shame, showing them life and, and care and faithfulness and giving them rest and healing. And over and over and over he's showing his power. And yet there's this moment in Matthew 16 where Jesus is beginning to kind of like embrace who he is and it's becoming a little more public and Jesus asks his disciples, they say, says, hey, who do the people say that I am? And the disciples say, well, some, some say that you're Elijah, some say you're John the Baptist back from the dead, um, you know, and, and he says, well, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, well, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, well done, Peter. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you. The Spirit of God has revealed this to you. This is true. And he says, and the Christ, what, what my mission is, Jesus says, I will go, I will be betrayed, I will be crucified and killed, and on the third day I will rise again. And Peter says, no, 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 no. That's not what a Christ, that's not, the king comes to win the victory, not to die. Kings shouldn't die, the Messiah shouldn't die. You gotta win. No, and what Jesus says to Peter in that moment is, be gone, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Get out of here, Satan. Saying even through that, Peter's reluctance to receive the cross as Jesus' path to life is a part of the satanic opposition. That we as human beings are reluctant to, to come to a Savior who was crucified. A Savior who won his victory through death. And he won the victory through death so spectacularly. So spectacularly. And here's why that matters. Because we've all turned We've all taken the bait. We've all failed in the wilderness. We've all wandered away and listened to the lies of the enemy. And we've gone and we've done things that we feel shame about and broken about and messed up about, guilt and remorse. And it's real. And that the path to life isn't to kind of like cleanse ourselves as good as we can and, and work hard to undo all the bad things we've done. The path to life is to look to the one who on the cross took all of that debt, all of that sin, all of that weight, it says this in Colossians 2. It says he took the record of debt that stood against us with all of its demands, all of its weight. And he set it aside by nailing it to the cross. And it says when he did that, when he canceled the record of debt that stood against us, it says he disarmed the rulers and the authorities, all those spiritual beings, by triumphing over them. But when he cleanses us of our sin, they have nothing to say anymore. Death is not the last word in our life, but our sin isn't the last word in our life either. We can say like, yeah, we've messed up. I've failed time and time again. I've turned again. I've fallen in the wilderness a billion times and I'm gonna keep falling. I'm gonna keep learning and, and growing and kind of like fumbling my way through life as a human trying to navigate through this spiritual battlefield and I'm gonna take hits and I'm gonna fall and, and the path to life is not to pretend that that's not real. It's to embrace that as a real thing and to say, my sin is real. 
My brokenness is real. My shame is real. My weaknesses are real. The guilt I feel is real. And Jesus came to die for me, to wash me, to forgive me, to show me his love in the face of all of that sin. And it makes me think of that great quote from Martin Luther where he says this. He says, so when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. That to be in the kingdom of God, to experience all the love and the joy and the victory of Jesus, isn't to, to be perfect and to forge our way through the life without messing up. It's, to say, it's actually the opposite. To say, I've, I've messed up royally, perpetually, often, regularly. And Jesus died for me. And God loves me. And his mercies towards me are new every day. And his grace towards me is unending. His love to me is unconditional. His faithfulness in my life is beautiful. And to receive that and find joy and life and hope in that place leads to a joy and a liberty and a freedom that shines as light in the world. Let's pray. Jesus, we need you now. Um, I just want to ask you, friends, like as you think about your own life, just to get honest right now, where do you feel the enemy's tactics? That perpetual voice, it's enticing you, it's been enticing you, you've been, you've been nibbling at the bait, you've taken the bait maybe a long time ago. You're contemplating it right now. Or where is there an accusing voice where there's, there's maybe a failure from your past that you just feel, you feel shame about? It's hard to be honest about, but it's keeping you tucked away. It's making you doubt God's love for you, God's care for you. I want to ask, where do you need to be liberated? Where do you need Jesus to set you free? encourage you to ask him right now, Jesus, will you set me free? Will you set me free? Jesus, would you work in power? Give us confidence in your victory, confidence in your love, confidence in your faithfulness and your mercy and your grace towards us. Would you, through your power, set us free from the things that are just gnawing at our life, feel like they're haunting us day in and day out. Would you set us free and show us the joy and the freedom of what it means to be your beloved children. In Christ's name we pray, amen.